Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur. It consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Bin University in Hanoi, Vietnam, where it is 11 p.m. here <laughs> and 12 p.m. in the East Coast, where I normally am. Today, please welcome our guest, Jim Fielding, author of All Pride, No Ego. Uh, no ego. Uh, Jim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Jim, could you please give us, a, let's start with you telling us your professional background. Sure, sure. I, um, I have a, a diverse career that really, uh, I call it the two halves. The first half was very uh, structured and focused in traditional retail. I came out of Indiana University and went into an executive training program in department stores and then did about nine years at The Gap. And I always say that was the heyday of The Gap. It was like getting an MBA in retail, the late 80s and most of the 90s at The Gap. And then did a stint at the catalog Lane's End because I wanted to learn the catalog business. And, and then I kind of flip into the second half and that's really where I get into media and entertainment. And I was recruited to work in the Disney catalog by the Walt Disney Company, moved to California for to work with them and spent 12 years at Disney, almost 12 years, um, including the last four as president of Disney stores worldwide. And then was recruited to be the CEO of Claire Stores, the girls' jewelry and accessory store, ear-piercing store based in Chicago. I was there for a little over two years and then got called back to California by Jeffrey Katzenberg, the founder of DreamWorks, to work uh, in a company he had bought called Awesomeness TV, uh, a multi-channel YouTube network uh, company. And I ended up uh, being head of consumer products and experiences for Awesomeness TV and DreamWorks. DreamWorks got sold to NBC Universal, and I was out of a job and uh, had a fortuitous lunch with Stacey Snyder at 20th Century Fox, who had just become the head of the studio there and ended up being the president of consumer products and innovation at 20th Century Fox for the movie studio and the television studio. I worked for Stacy and Gary Newman and Dana Walden. And then again, we can, <laughs> there's lots of questions about this. Disney came back into my life because Disney bought Fox. And so I spent 18 months transitioning the Fox business over to Disney and then was out of a job again. And decided for the first time in my career to really take a break and uh, use the severance package and the time that had been allotted to me. And then the pandemic hit. And I decided that I was going to start consulting. And uh, so I, I formed a consulting business with two partners and then decided during the pandemic that it was really hard to do a startup consulting business. And then uh, joined a, a small independent uh, media company in New York called Archer Gray. That's where I am today. I'm the president of the CoLab division. We do film and television documentaries, docuseries. And the part that I run is really our brand strategy, experiential retail and consulting arm. And so I do work for our own brands that we own or our own intellectual property that we control. 
And then I do uh, client consulting work as well. And, uh, and now I'm an author. In the middle of it all, I decided that I had a book. I had a story I wanted to tell. And so took kind of the isolation of the pandemic and spent a lot of time uh, working on this book. And here we are today. So tell us, why did you write this book? I think it was a, a couple of reasons. Um, one, I started to see what was going on socially and politically in the United States, the attacks on marginalized communities overall, but particularly uh, attacks on the queer community. And I started to get more vocal and visible in social media about that. And I started to get contacted by a couple of uh, publishers who said, it feels like you might have a book in you. And, you know, and I said, I don't want to write a Disney tell-all book. A lot of people wanted me to write a Disney book. Obviously, Disney is in my book, but it's not all about Disney. And I realized that having been an out queer uh, executive and had made it to the C-suite, I had been a CEO, I'd been a president, I had operated you know, and worked for some of the most amazing brands and people in the world and did it from a rather unique perspective. And at the time, I didn't really realize how unique it was. But with the benefit of hindsight and, you know, going back and looking at a lot of my journals, I'm a journaler, and, you know, going back and reliving stories, I thought this is a unique story. And I wanted to help um, new leaders, younger leaders, really leaders of any, any tenure, but anybody who felt that they that they were being marginalized or didn't fit in, I thought that I could share some stories and help maybe make their path a little bit easier. Well, I thought you did a great job about Thank that. You. It's a must, it's a real must-read book. In the book, you mentioned that you knew you were gay at age six. Mm. <laughs> that? I didn't know what it was called, as I said in the book. I just knew that I wanted, I was more attracted to at the time boys than I was girls. And I knew that it felt different. And I also was aware because of how I was raised and the situation where I was raised that it was wrong, that that wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. And so I think as I got into adolescence, as I you know went through puberty and was struggling with that, um, I talk a lot in the book about how I tried to change. Like I, I wanted to be different. I, I hoped I was bisexual for a while. Um, and I, I tried lots of, uh, just thinking and and praying honestly to to change because I thought that being gay was wrong. I thought that being gay was hard. Uh, I thought that being gay was not the proper way. Um, and really, a lot of the book is about that journey, this journey to self acceptance. Which, frankly, I didn't I didn't come out or, as I like to say, invite people into my story until I was twenty three, and then I didn't tell my parents until I was twenty six. And so really from six to 26, there was a lot of angst in, in those 20 years. You write you were a cisgender, meaning you were born Male. a boy or a girl. Right. Why was it? What was that? Yep. Yeah. Born a boy. Yep. Yeah. Why, why was this uh, important to mention? I, I just feel that like one of the things that I've learned as, as a gay man about our community is I have learned so much about the trans community and the non-binary community. And, you know, as I like to say, all the colors of the rainbow and all the letters of the alphabet that I, I oftentimes, uh, I think my experience is that of a cisgender white gay man. And it's not the experience of a trans uh, person of color or a non-binary person. 
And I thought that that was important for my community to own that and identify that uh, because my journey and my path is my story. It's not the story of the queer community overall. And um, do you think being gay changes how you manage and lead people? <laughs> it's one of my favorite questions, Mark. Uh, you know, I'm out on this book tour right now, and I was in Chicago two nights ago, and somebody asked me almost this exact same question. And and I, I honestly don't know how to answer it. I mean, I do, I think now that I've grown to this unconditional love and acceptance of myself, I do think that it being queer is part of my superpowers, but I don't think it's the only superpower that I have. And I think that, you know, the question is, because I, you know, if I went back and did it differently, if I had been a straight man and married with three kids, would I have had the same career path? I honestly don't know. Uh, but I do think because of my experiences in my youth, and the experiences of feeling different and feeling other and feeling marginalized at many times in my life, including throughout my career, I do think I've developed a certain empathy and EQ, I guess is the best way to say, that does influence my leadership style and my management style. Um, and I feel that my career has been more successful after I embraced my story. I spent the first four years of my career in the closet and I know that I am more productive and I have been more productive and more successful and more innovative after I fully embraced who I was. So I guess the answer is yes. I think being the gay man that I am made me into the manager and leader that I am. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, do you think um, being gay changes how you manage and lead people? I think so. I mean, it's a little bit of that EQ thing again. I think that I, because I want to embrace my own authenticity and my own story. I encourage people who work with me to share as much of their story as they're comfortable with, whatever that story is. And I think, you know, I write in the book, everybody has differences, everybody has quirks, whether it's race, gender, religion, uh, socioeconomic background, somebody grew up in the South, somebody grew up in the West, everybody has differences. And I like to think, and what I'm trying to promote with the book, is that creating these safe environments where people can own those differences and actually celebrate those differences, to me, is my definition of authentic leadership. And so I don't force anybody. I mean, if you know, I have, I have people that work with me that I know a lot about. I have people I work with that I know a little bit about and, and in between. It's, but what the whole point of it is, it's what they're comfortable with sharing. And that I feel that if they can bring their 100% authentic self to work, they're going to be the most productive team member that I could ever ask for. Your mom was an al alcoholic. How yes. did that affect your life's views, especially leading people and identifying that this is in a high stress environment you worked? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I write in the book that, you know, I started to identify it at like nine or 10. I mean, that's um, sobering for a child, right? And I, I think I instantly kicked into caretaker, caregiver mode. And it's a mode I'm still in today uh, with many people in my life, including my mom. Um, she's been recovered for 19 years now, thank God. Um, but I think how it shaped me is I, I kind of grew up fast. I became an adult faster than I probably, I missed out on some playtime, I think, because I understood the seriousness of what was going on. And I, I think I also was able to compartmentalize 
And I realized that that was a very private family situation. That, that was not something that you went around sharing with a lot of people. And so I think I started to live a duality, as I talk about in the book, that actually prepared me to be a gay man. When I was a closeted gay man, you're living a duality. And I was actually living a duality because on the surface, our family looked extremely functional and normal. And um, I think people probably admired us. They thought we were a, a happy, successful family. But at home, you know, the truth behind the closed doors was was much, much different. And I think that duality prepared me for life as a gay man. You, like me, come uh, from a town town in a time where therapy wasn't embraced. I was in a steel town and coach. Yes. What made you do it and how did it change you? And what did your f- family think? They... Yeah. I mean, to your point, I mean, there was no resources in high school. There was not like there was, I don't even know if we had benefits for therapy at the time because nobody ever thought to talk about it. Um, And no, I grew up in a very blue, my dad was a fireman in Salido, Ohio. So very similar background. And really where I started to access those resources was in college at the, the, um, the student health center. Um, And what made me do it was I realized that I was struggling and I needed to talk to a professional. I didn't feel like I needed drugs. You know, it wasn't about like, I need a psychiatrist, I'm depressed, I need, you know, ADD drugs or things like that. I didn't feel that, but I felt that I was struggling mentally and that I needed to work on that the same way that if I were to work on something, if I had been struggling physically. And I, when I started it, because it was part of my student health services, I didn't tell my parents originally at all, because it was just kind of showing up like in my student health bill. And I don't think they realized what I was doing, you know, but as I got older, including when my mom went through rehab, there's a lot of therapy and family therapy when mom, you know, um, started her path to sobriety. We talked openly about therapy, coaching, um, professionals. And, and I tell people all the time, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of seeking therapy. I try to make a little bit of a joke out of it to people, but I'm like, I hire a professional to do my taxes. I hire a professional to help me with investments. Why wouldn't I hire a professional to help me with my, my brain and my soul and my psyche? I respect the profession. I respect the process. And to me, it's self-care. Therapy, executive coaching, whatever you want to call it, is is self-care. It's part of my self-care routine. I don't think it's a very big deal now today, right? It's not very different now. I mean, almost everybody has a therapist. I mean, you almost don't know someone who doesn't have a therapist. It's certainly not as taboo as it was in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I have family members that have come out as gay and they're entering the workforce. And is there still a stigma or is that behind us? Does that depend on the geographic area or the regional uh, culture or the industry you're in? I, I think it's kind of a multi-choice question. It's all of the above. I think, I think the experiences and the stories of our community in the workforce now completely vary by geography, by profession, by industry. And You know, I I wrote an opinion piece lately and the title of it was, did 25 years in California make me soft? Because now I live in Atlanta. Atlanta is a very progressive and and liberal city. The state of Georgia is not progressive and liberal. Um, And the protections in the state of Georgia are nowhere like the protections in the state of California. And so I, 
when I do talk to young people or people who are early in their career and they ask me about the path, I'm always very careful to ask them, what industry are you in? Where do you live? And I do some research because I don't want to be cavalier or glib about the advice that I give. And I, I encourage people to do their own research and understand what your rights are as an employee, what your rights are as a, as a resident of that city or that state or that municipality, because it's not the same. We're not consistent. There are not national protections. There are not national standards. And I, I think sometimes those of us who live in more liberal, more accepting, you know, more uh, ally-based communities can take that for granted. But we have to think about the people who don't because we have to protect them as well. You write throughout the book that you were a control freak. <laughs> when did you notice this and how, how has that helped you or hurt you professionally? Because <laughs> I, I imagine it's a double-edged sword. Totally double-edged sword. I mean, I think... I write in the book, I, I think part of the controlling came out, honestly, with having an alcoholic mother and, and helping organize her and making sure that the status quo was good at home and that my little sister was protected and everything else. Um, I've always been super organized. I've always been type A, anal retentive. And honestly, for most of my life, you know, school, uh, industry, I was rewarded for it because I delivered projects usually early or at least on time, usually on or under budget. And I, I was very good at project management and calendar management and handling multiple priorities. And I could read you reviews I had about Jim is excellent at juggling multiple priorities. Jim is excellent at um, project management. And, and when you start getting that external validation, it's a little bit like a dopamine. It's like a drug, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to get better at this. I mean, they like this. I'm going to get better. I'm getting rewarded. I'm going to get promoted. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to keep being this. And then as I got older... I started to realize that I was setting myself up for some unrealistic expectations and that I was being very, very hard on my team because not everybody could be the same that I was. And I also realized that I was missing spontaneity. I was missing happenstance because I had literally scheduled 100% of my personal and professional life, usually 12 to 18 months in advance. Like, I, you know, I could be sitting with friends at Christmas and already be telling them what I was going to be doing the next Christmas because I had my life, especially in... in retail and media, there's just this natural flows of that business. There's these conferences and times of the year where you just know you're going to be certain places. And I, again, through work with my executive coach, through work with journaling, I realized that I had to start letting go and creating these spaces for the possible, as I talk about in the book. And I honestly started it, Mark, by putting breaks into my calendar. Like I would literally have to write in my calendar, break or gym time, J-I-M time. Um, to force myself just to sit and do nothing, just think. And over time, it became more of a habit to where now I would say I follow an 80-20 rule. I'm still 80% of my life is very planned and organized and calendared. But I find that 20% that is more spontaneity, spontaneity and happenstance, I get some of my best ideas and inspiration out of those times. Yeah, I think uh, that's the case. But I think in the businesses that you ran and the demands on your time, you can't help but to be scheduled out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, retail retail's open 364 days a year or 363. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you need a plan for sure. Yeah, and, and I think anytime you're running a big organization uh, and you're trying to manage your time properly, that you've basically 
scheduled mm-hmm. everything uh, all the time that you have. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you work for such a creative company like Disney and rise so high as a rules follower? Did you discourage risk taking with your subordinates? Um, I don't think I discouraged it. No, I mean, I I actually think I mean I love managing in creative environments. I mean, I love creatives, all kinds of creatives. Uh, the arts, music, dance, like anybody, I mean, film writers, you know, screenwriters, actors. Um, I, I was very blessed at Disney for 11 of my 12 years. I had one boss who was an incredible mentor, Andy Mooney, who saw talents in me and skills in me that he admired. And he worked with me on them and groomed them and enabled them to flourish and took some risks on me and put me in probably bigger jobs than I was ready for sometimes, but he knew that I would grow and I would stretch myself and do it. I also, the other thing, you know, I talk a lot about in Disney um, in the book. And then, you know, when I talk about Disney with friends is that is a company that you are surrounded with a lot of very, very intelligent people in all different kinds of skill sets. And so I, other than the gap, I had never worked at a company where there were so many bright people around. And I found that extremely inspirational extremely it it drove me like i was like oh my god she's so good at finance i want to be better right oh my god she's so good at uh graphic design i want to learn and you know one of the things i talk about in the book is being constantly curious and a lifelong learner i think that was one of the best things of working at disney is that i i could feel myself learning new skills i could feel myself stretching and growing uh because it was such a creative and i was there for when we bought Pixar and when Disney bought Marvel and right at the end when Disney bought Lucas. And so also to bring in those creative communities, the creative geniuses at Pixar and Marvel and Lucas, um, and just to be surrounded by by that magic and that artistry was unbelievable. Um, what were the cultures like working for Disney and DreamWorks and considering Disney was pushing back against the backlash against Gay mm-hmm. people in Florida, this must have been a very supportive environment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I felt completely supported, uh, enabled to be my full, the best version of Jim. Um, until, you know, until the end, as I write about the book. I mean, when I had a boss change, that was a little bit challenging that last year at Disney. But it, it wasn't about being gay. It was a variety of other things. But um no, Disney was extremely supportive. DreamWorks was extremely supportive. Uh, you know, very different cultures. I mean, the size of the companies were so different. Um, DreamWorks felt much more family, much more, like I felt like I could touch more of DreamWorks. I mean, we were kind of on one campus together. We weren't that geographically dispersed. Where Disney, you know, I had teams and I worked on teams that were completely around the world and global. Um But at the core, because Jeffrey Katzenberg, who founded DreamWorks, had also worked at Disney, the core of those two cultures is the same, which was this immense respect for storytelling and this immense respect for quality. Um, And that those two things were at the core of everything we did. And if you felt that you were not telling great stories and you were not doing quality work, then you were really not part of that culture. It was both of them, Disney and DreamWorks, that was very similar. They were across the street from each other, by the way. My offices, I could see my office at Disney from my office at DreamWorks, ironically. Yeah, I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah, they're literally on two sides of the street. Uh, in the book, you favor a flexible work environment. Can you build a corporate culture if people aren't seeing each other day to day, especially in a creative environment? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's what I struggle with, honestly, Mark, for, for your listeners and viewers is, you know, for 90% of my career, 95% of my career, I was an in-person leader and manager. I was a five-day-a-week in the office manager and leader. And I remember, you know, Mark, I'm of a certain age, when we got summer Fridays, right? When we got summer half days, that wasn't like, I mean, what I think it started 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so a lot of my skills and a lot of my talents, and I think the ways that I managed were always about in person because I'd like, let's get in a room and work together. Let's pull everybody together. Let's grab lunch. Um, and I think the pandemic, like all of us, has challenged me to learn how to work virtually how to be in Zoom, Zoom meetings and team meetings and Google Meets and all those kind of things. And then, and how to manage hybrid. And I think, again, lifelong learner, it's teaching me new skills. I like hybrid because especially in a creative environment, I do think there's value at times for a team to be together, brainstorming, blue skying, problem solving together in person. My filter I'm using now is if I ask people to come into an office environment or, you know, work two or three days a week in an office environment, I want to make sure that the activities and meetings we're doing when we're in that environment are value added at being together. The worst thing I think you can do to a team is if you ask them to come in and work and then they spend their entire time on Zoom calls or in these little phone booths, like then they're going to be like, well, I could just do this from home. Why did I come to the office to do this? And so I want to make sure, you know, and you know, it's how we work at Archer Gray and it's, and now, you know, I do a lot of client work. So it's, I have to follow what the client does, but um, I, I firmly believe that as leaders and managers, if you're pulling people together, you have to make sure that what they're doing is actually stimulating and adding value. You write that selfish isn't a bad word, which yeah. now has a negative connotation. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's it's part of my Midwestern upbringing. Like I was I was raised in a household where selfish was a bad word. Uh, and if you were called selfish, it meant you probably weren't sharing your toys or you were, you know, not sharing with your sister or something. And usually for in my house resulted in a timeout where I was like sitting in the corner staring at a wall and literally being told, think about what you did. Think about what you did, Jim. Jimmy. You know, I was called Jimmy because my dad was Jim. And um and so I grew up thinking, put everybody else's needs first, you know, be a caretaker, be a caregiver, don't be selfish, like do not be selfish. And what I realized is I was doing that to an extent where I was running my own batteries down. And when I did that, I would either get physically sick or I'd get bitter because I'd be like, oh my God, I'm just giving, 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 and I'm not getting anything back in return. What am I doing wrong? And again, through the work with my executive coach and through therapy, I learned that I'm better when physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, my inventory and my needs are being taken care of. It actually makes me a better leader, makes me a better manager, it makes me a better person, it makes me a better partner, a better brother, a better son, uncle, you name it. And I had to learn, and I mentioned it earlier, selfish equals self-care. And honestly, one of the moments that it really hit me, and, and I, I've been flying a lot in this book tour, is, you know, it's that safety video at the beginning of any flight when they say if the oxygen mask falls down from the ceiling, comes down from the ceiling, uh, put yours on first before helping somebody else. And it's that same kind of mentality to me, is that when I'm, when I'm fully centered and present and feeling healthy and focused, I think it's a better environment for everybody that I work with. 
Yeah, I I think so as well. And that is a good example of what they tell you when you're flying. Yeah. Could you have made all of the positive transitions and steps if you hadn't had the benefit of therapy? And how do you evaluate to pick the right therapist? Oh, no. I mean, I I definitely had some amazing therapists in my life. And my executive coach I talk about from Disney, David Oldfield, I was blessed with. Um, no, I think I, I think I might have got there eventually, but with a lot of fumbling around and stumbling. But I think I think what having, you know, a couple of the people I'm thinking about um, building a relationship with them over time, a trust and an honesty where they could be direct with me and be clear on what they thought I should be doing differently or, you know, giving me suggestions of how I could do better. I mean, what I love about executive coaching and therapy is they don't tell you how to do it. They, they make you kind of get to the decisions on your own, but, you know, through coaching and through, um, through some work. Uh, but no, I, I, I give total credit to it. And, and honestly, for me, I've had, you know, I've, I've therapist shopped. I mean, I've had a couple of sessions with people where it's not clicking. Um, I think it's, uh, it's a professional relationship, but it's also a personal relationship. And I think you have to feel comfortable with the person you're working with to share, again, your authenticity, your, your strengths, your vulnerabilities, your fears, your insecurities. And um, I don't want to say it, it's like, it is a relationship. It's not like a dating relationship, but it's a relationship. It's a professional relationship. And it's a different filter. You know, for example, I mentioned my accountant before. I have a really good relationship with my accountant. I chose my accountant because my accountant is honest and ethical and organized and had a great reputation with his other clients. And you know, helps me meet my deadlines and my tax obligations. And I always feel confident when I'm signing papers that he gives me. That's a different filter to pick a tax preparer or accountant than it is to pick a therapist. There's there's a personal level in therapy or executive coaching uh, that goes beyond the professional, I think. Yeah, I think you have to feel the connection with that person. Yeah, connection. Yeah, mm -hmm, for sure. Uh uh, there are lessons you've learned along the way, such as being a compassionate leader and, and that achieving goals is important, but not as important as how you got there. Yeah. Well, what do you mean and how can you give and give us an example of this? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my leadership philosophy and my management style is very much rooted that how you achieve the goal is as important as achieving the goal. I am not an ends justifies the means kind of leader or person. And so I would rather work collaboratively and with people than through people. I am as ambitious and driven and competitive as any other executive that you would talk to. But I feel that like I, the way that I achieve those goals and that the way that I define success is, was it accomplished as a team? Was it accomplished collaboratively and in a way that was enhancing not only for me, but for everybody on the team? And was it a positive experience for all of us? It doesn't mean that I'm not willing to make the tough decisions. It doesn't mean that sometimes I have to be directive as a boss. If, if a team is coming to me and saying, we can't figure it out, do we do blue or do we do red? And I have to say red, we'll do red. And I will give those directions. And, and But at the same time, I always want to make sure that people feel listened to, that people feel respected, and that their opinions count. Um, and... That, that's really what I talk about in the book is that I, I lead with what I call authentic kindness. Like I, I, I'm an active listener. I want people to feel engaged. 
And my theory is that engaged, an engaged employee is a productive employee, a productive team member. Um, and I think people want to know they're making a difference at work. I really do. Because it's, it's work, but I think that they want to feel that they're making a contribution. Oh, I think so too. That's more important than money. Uh, Absolutely. Ventures, then everybody will always say that um, the money is secondary to feeling good about why you're there. 100%. And when people leave, it's so funny because to your point, Mark, when you do exit interviews, there's very rarely that people are leaving because they're not getting paid enough or they don't have good benefits. They're leaving because they don't like the culture or they don't like the person that they're working for. And there's tons of data and research on that from people smarter than me. And I'm a perfect example of that. I left Disney because I wasn't happy with the culture and I wasn't happy with how I was being managed. It wasn't about my title. It wasn't about my job. It wasn't about my benefits, my pay, anything. It was simply culture and how I was being managed. Yeah. And the culture changed um, in the yep. past year. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, bringing and, back and a you can, Right. And you can't, right. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled. I read a lot about Bob Iger and his management style in the, in the book and what he meant to me personally. But um, what you also realize in a company the size of Disney or and many corporations is you can't always control the circumstance that you're in. You know, you can't, you can try to influence it. You can try to lead. But my circumstances changed overnight when uh, my boss changed and it literally was like a light switch. My, my experience at Disney, it was, it was something changed overnight. The, the guy who ran Disney uh, prior uh, to Bob Iger coming back, uh, Bob Kopech? Chapek. Yeah, Chapek. Right away, when you read in the Wall Street Journal his background, it was, um, he was a great finance guy, good numbers guy, but not a guy to lead that kind of organization. If he was at J.P. Morgan or one of the investment banks, that may have been a different story. But I, I read that he didn't believe in lunches with uh, people. Yeah. He didn't believe in networking. He was all about data, day in very and day data, out. Data, very when, data. When you're in a people business, I mean, yeah, data is important, but you're very much in the people business there. Yeah. And so you can imagine reading that and what you know about me from reading the book, yeah. we were literally oil and water. I mean, we literally, we were on two different islands. And even though I I worked and listen, I'm, I'm data driven. I believe in data. I, I know how to work my numbers. I know I, I, yeah, of course. I know I know my way around a PL. But fundamentally we were oil and water from day literally from almost day one. And and you could feel it. You could feel there was almost a I mean a palpable change, like a temperature change almost. But um, but that kind of leader lost quality people. I mean according to the journal, this is prior to him uh resigning that uh, a lot of the top people were leaving Disney because of this disconnect and how he operated. And, and you see that when uh, boards think they're being smart by bringing in somebody who's good with numbers, they don't look at the personality of the person and say, in this kind of business, we got plenty of people who can do numbers, but we have people that can inspire people. Mm -hmm. Especially in creative organizations. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, he was so... 
opposite of what Bob Iger's skill sets were. I mean, I think it was it was shocking to the entire organization. Now, I wasn't there for that part. I left when when uh, Mr. Chapik became head of Disney Consumer Products when Andy Mooney left. So I was much earlier before the CEO range uh, changed. But um, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. But and and that's what I talk about in the book is that overnight. Honestly, I think had management or leadership been different, I might still be president of Disney Store today. I've been gone 10 years. It was still the favorite job I ever had. No offense against anybody who I worked with anywhere else. But being president of Disney Store was my favorite job I ever had in my career. And I I would still be doing it today if I had been allowed to and enabled to and supported 100%. In the book, you wrote about one technique you used to build culture and teamwork. Uh, could you please elaborate? Sure. I think you're talking about Java with Jim. And uh, yeah. yeah, it uh, it started um, it started at Disney. Um, and it, I realized that when I was leading bigger and bigger teams, it was getting harder and harder to know everybody on the team. You know, like I always met with every new hire, like I would do orientation and things like that. But I didn't necessarily know everybody on the team because we were getting more geographically dispersed and you know, lots of different functions. And so uh, I had this incredible uh, communications group, um, John Gong and Jim Babcock and some amazing people who said, um, why don't we start some kind of like coffee chat time? And we literally came up with Java with Jim and we actually designed a coffee mug and people still have the coffee mugs, which had this little picture of me and uh, like a caricature of me. And It was a random, like we literally pulled people's names out of a hat, 15 to 20 people. And we consciously made sure that nobody in the room reported to each other. So once the names were drawn, we might put some more people back in the hat and pull out some other names. And it was a one hour, come to this conference room, have some coffee, have a donut, have a bagel. And the only rules were basically there was no rules. I didn't take notes. I didn't report back to people afterwards. And it was basically an open, free-flowing discussion where people could ask anything about the business if they wanted to ask about something, you know, about that I was working on. And, and at the same time, I would ask questions back and it would allow me to learn about how people were feeling about different projects or different, you know, different aspects of our business. So I did as much active listening as I did talking. Um, we initially started out saying we were going to do them quarterly, so four times a year. They became so popular, we did a monthly, which basically meant, you know, I was getting through most of the team once a year. And then I took Java with Jim internationally. So when I would go to London or the Japanese, you know, the Tokyo office or the Paris office, I would do a version of Java with Jim locally as well. And um, I've taken that with me now to every company. It started at Disney, but I've taken it to every company. I did it at DreamWorks. I did it at Fox. Um, I do it now. Um, and I, it's, it's a tool I love. Excellent. And I think those kind of things make feel the connection with people. And clearly, you need to be out of your corner office. I mean, I've worked uh, a company that invested in me, and they were uh, not billion dollar company, but 500 million. And you had to get through the gauntlet to see the CEO and the president. Mm-hmm. And they were so um, physically separate from everybody else. 
and you felt like you couldn't even go there and have a conversation with them. But yeah, no. I, I worked with a guy who had been president CEO of American Express Credit Corp. We ran a $32 billion business Ooh. for American Express. And uh, he was my partner, one of my ventures. He insisted that I don't sit in my office at all, that I had to sit in the bullpen with all the employees so they could physically see me, touch me, and talk to me. Yeah. And I, I really didn't like it in the beginning, but I saw the value of it. 100%. I, I liked the idea of being in my own office, thinking, working on stuff without being bothered. But he said, you're the leader of the organization. Uh, if you If they can't touch and see you, then you lose them. And I thought it was wise advice. For sure. Um, when hiring managers, what was the profile of the skills and mental mindset you looked for? I mean, uh, you know, it depended on it. Obviously, like, the thing about the companies that I ran, you know, we had finance people, we had accountants, we had IT people, we had creatives, like, you know, a lot of a lot of the technical skills you look for were obviously very position specific. And, you know, did they have the technical skills to do the job required? Did they have the background, the experience, the education? But a lot of, uh, as I guess we would say, the soft skills that I was looking for were, um, were they uh, creative in their approach to their job? Were they a creative problem solver? Were they a collaborator? Were they did they have experience working on teams and working cross-functionally on teams? Uh, and always, you know, what a, a lot of the most important questions to me were like, why, why did they want the job? You know, why, why come to work with us at Disney or come work with us at DreamWorks? Like what was motivating it? And again, it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier about why people leave. You know, I loved hearing from people. I wasn't about, I need the job, I need the money, I need the benefits. It was like, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to work on quality storytelling. I want I want to be part of, you know, creating great movies or great television shows or great product. Um, that's the kind of people that I was looking for. And, it's, and it doesn't mean that everybody was a clone. Um, I think a team, again, managing authentically, managing diversity, you have extroverts, you have introverts, you have everything in between. Um, but I think there was a certain camaraderie that I was looking for. And again, when I was doing most of my heavy hiring, we were in an office-based environment. And so that meant that people were going to have to be interacting in an office-based environment. And so you were kind of looking for those soft skills. You know, there is a difference now a little bit when you're hiring remotely for, you know, remote positions. But um, I think at my core, I'm still drawn to those kind of people. By the way, I'm uh, co- faculty member at Vin University for our internship, uh, Vin University mm. of Vietnam, which is in the Ivy League school for Vietnam. And the main thing that we hear from every supervisor, your kids got great technical skills. They're amazing. We want to hire them, but they need more work in the soft skills. They need yeah. more work in how to network uh, in the organization, learn more from others in the organization, speak up at meetings. Yeah. I find I've met with over 30 different uh, supervisors in companies, and every one of them was telling us the same thing. And I thought that was really interesting it is. how important soft skills are and how at university level, we need to be focused on those. That's like the one piece of the puzzle that is missing for a lot of these. A lot. And I worry, I worry, Mark, about, especially, and I think now that we're out of, I mean, I know COVID isn't fully gone, but 
I worry about those kids who spent two years learning remotely, right, when campuses were closed, because a lot of where they start to develop those soft skills are in college classrooms and in college groups and, and you know, student groups that they belong to. And I, I worry about we've created these generations of people who, who think they're connecting, but they're only connecting digitally, right? Connecting through TikTok or connecting through Instagram or, um, you know, DMing or, or um, you know, Facebook or things like that. And I, I do think part of what I would want as a, as a leader and a manager and a supervisor of people is the, is the universities helping create some of those soft skills because that's where you see people fail most of the time when you hire. It's very rarely that somebody fails because they're not able to do their job technically. It's, you know, you, you start to hear things like they're not a cultural fit or, you know, they're just not seeming to get, you know, connected to the team, you know, which are all these codes for, more of the soft side, the networking, the communication, the how do you develop relationships in person? Um, how do you develop productive working relationships? Which I always say to people, it doesn't mean you're going out to happy hour every night after work with these people, like, but you have to have productive working relationships when you're in the work environment. Doesn't mean you have to hang out on nights and weekends, but you need to be productive when you're together. Oh, no question about it. Um, you write about developing a commitment to a culture of excellence. What are the telltale signs of an organization that isn't committed to excellence? Because I think everybody thinks they're committed. Yeah, to <laughs> yeah. I, I love, I love this question. I mean, for me, it's where I would see, and the different times in my career where I had teams that weren't functioning at their highest potential level, and believe me, I've had them, is when you start to get finger pointing. And you start to get blame assignment, um, you know, for projects being delivered late or projects not really being done, you know, to our usual standard. And where you start to have people coming to your office, bringing you complaints or stopping you in the hallway and, and offering problems. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the people that I like are people who come to you with a problem, but also come to you with a solution. And I think as a leader, when you start to feel like, hmm, I'm getting a lot of problems put on my back, people are asking me to solve things that I don't necessarily think are my bailiwick. Like, I don't think I should be solving this. They should be able to solve them at a lower level, or they should be able to solve them in their, their cross-functional teams. Why are they not? I think that's where your active listening skills kick in, and you start to think, okay, what's going on? Is there stress here? You know, are, is there too much work? Have we not assigned resources appropriately? Um, and you start you start to hear it and you start to see it. You can start to see the tension. You can start to see tension on people's faces. And, and also, I think there's measures, again, depending on the size of your team, if you start to see your turnover, your voluntary turnover going up, um, you start to see people, I, especially in the last couple of years where you've seen people take sabbaticals or personal leaves or mental health leaves, those are cautionary signs. Those are cautionary tales that you need to look at. Um, are you truly creating a culture that promotes excellence and promotes authenticity and promotes feeling valued? You write about developing a commitment to uh, you. Uh, you wrote embracing the Japanese term. Ikigai. I, I, Ikigai. Yeah. Yep. Ikigai. I might be saying it wrong. I might be saying it wrong, but yes. Uh, reason for being or life in balance. Isn't it harder now to find life balance than any time in history because we're literally competing globally. And now with AI doing many of the jobs that humans can do, 
people feel they need to show a greater commitment at work. What's your advice there? Yeah, I mean, I still, yes, I think it's harder to achieve this balance and this harmony. And 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 just for your the viewers and listeners, Ikigai is the intersection in, in Japanese. It's the intersection of what you're good at, what you can be paid for, what the world needs, and what you personally are passionate about, which I think is a really interesting Venn diagram intersection. And I, I think it is challenged because a lot of industries and a lot of companies have very short-term focuses right now. You're only as good as your current month. You're only as good as your current quarter. There's a lot of strife, like even in, in my industry right now, media and entertainment, we have the writer strike, we have the um, actor strike. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of bitterness and, and that puts pressure on you to perform under those environments. But I... I feel for me, it's almost like I have to double my commitment in my own life to making sure that I am holding those four, that intersection of that Venn diagram in, in mind right now and using it as a filter. And, and I think even, even writing the book and, and promoting the book and doing podcasts with people like you and, and going out on the book tour and the physical book tour, I mean, that's a conscious choice I'm making. I have a full-time job with Archer Gray, and I'm so grateful to Archer Gray that they're allowing me this time to, to basically focus on this as well. But I'm still doing client work. And I love the client work I'm doing and the work I'm doing for Archer Gray. I also love the work I'm doing with the book. And so that forces me then to make sure that I'm making that time because I am passionate about both of them, that I'm making that time to, to keep life in balance. And if there's times where I feel that it's not, then... I have to course correct and I have to look if I'm overextending myself or overcommitting to events or overcommitting to meetings to get my life back in balance. And I do think there's more pressure on us now than ever, for sure. I was shocked that you aren't on any, and we talked about this before we yeah. got on. I was shocked you aren't any corporate boards with your vast experience. And I do think you would add more value with startups, but it wouldn't be financially as rewarding. I believe you mentioned your approach when you had C-suite positions, but when you left, nothing came to fruition. Why do you think that is? Is it networking thing uh, as not having friends running companies, the um, board members? Is it diversity? What is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I write about it in the book because I, I'm still trying to learn myself, honestly, Mark. And, and I hope anybody that listens to this uh, podcast or views this podcast, you know, either live or, or taped, I'm totally open to insights on this. Um, I found it frustrating, to be quite honest, because I do feel that I have value. I am on one publicly traded board, Excel Brands board, and I'm very proud to be part of that. And I've done a lot of nonprofit work and, to your point, a lot of startup work. But I probably arrogantly assumed, you know, towards the end of my career and, you know, as I moved on from, from Claire's and DreamWorks and Fox, that I would be an interesting board candidate where I could add value. And I think any board position, whether it's a startup board position or a Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 board position, my filter has always been, am I going to add value to that board and to that CEO? And am I going to learn and grow and take something away from that? And I think, you know, I, I, I definitely think part of it is I'm probably not traveling in the right circles where people who are sitting CEOs and have board openings are putting my names on lists. That could be part of it. I'm not networked correctly. Or I also think 
um, I may not be fitting a part of the census that they're trying to build on their board. And I, I am all for the diversity of the, the push for more diversity on boards, particularly publicly traded large corporations. Um, but it's it's something that sometimes is a bit of a head scratcher for me because it's it's work I would like to do. But again, being the person that I am and you know my authenticity, if that's not the path that I'm supposed to be on, then I am completely thrilled to be doing the startup advising I'm doing and working with young entrepreneurs and you know working on this book. Um, you know, I'm not, let's just say I'm not sitting around for the phone, waiting for the phone to ring, right? If, if the right opportunity came, I would be grateful and I would do a really good job, but I'm not, um, I'm not sitting and feeling sorry for myself. You worked for some very big names in the entertainment industry. What did you learn about what it takes to run a large organization and inspire people up and down the line? Yeah, I've been blessed. I mean, it was, you know, when I was writing, you know, working on writing the book and just kind of writing down all my bosses and I, I thought, oh my God, I'm looking like a name dropper. Like, this is bad. Like, but then it was like legitimately my career. I had worked for some incredible people and what I, and I, I, I took away a little bit from all of them, but I would say all of the best bosses I have, particularly in media and entertainment, knew how to lead complex global multinational companies, respecting geographical and cultural differences and respecting functional differences. They know how to manage creatives, true creatives, true artists. They know how to manage finance and IT, true operational, functional, you know, um, more technical areas. And I think most importantly, they, they lead with vision and they lead with passion and that they establish a North Star for the company. They define success and then they help lead us all to that definition of success. They also have to know how to manage their boards, how to manage their investors, how to manage Wall Street in, a, uh, you know, in many multinational cases. Again, very specific skill sets. Sophia Vergara, Gloria from Modern Family, has a great reputation as an entrepreneur, Amazing. which you point out in the book. How did she manage to get herself taken seriously to the point that she's an acknowledged leader in the Latin entertainment industry? And what did you learn from consulting with her? Oh, my gosh, I took so much away from my time working with Sophia. And number one, she has her, her right hand, her business partner, who they've been together for over 25 years, Luis who they have an incredible mutual respect and professional working relationship. And what I admired from, from Sophia, when you look at her history and spending time with her, she is extremely intelligent, extremely focused. Of course, honestly, she's one of probably the most beautiful women I've ever met in my life in person, but she never relied solely on her physical, natural beauty and attributes. She knew that she wanted to have a diversified approach to life. And Sophia is a caregiver and a caretaker on steroids. Um, she takes care of the people that work for her. She takes care of her family. She takes care of the people around her. And she is so passionate. And she also takes care of her fans and her community of people that um, really support her. And um, she's genuine. She's uh, intelligent. She's authentic. Um, and 
she's also challenging and working for her. She challenged us to think differently and to think bigger and, and to really, um, work collaboratively with her. So I have, I have nothing but praise to say for the, the overall entrepreneur and woman that she is. I think she's a very talented actress, again, a natural beauty, but the parts that I take away from her are her humanness and her, her business acumen. Well, tell her now that she's single, I'm available as well. <laughs> I'm sure she's getting lots of phone calls, but I, I'll, put uh, in, maybe, I'll put maybe. in a good word. I'll put in a good yeah. word. I appreciate that. No matter how much success you've had, you seem to always be open to learning from others. How did you develop a match to keep that as a mindset? I, you know, I think part of it, it might be my Midwesternness. It might be that kind of work ethic, um, you know, those Midwestern values that I was born and raised with that, um, that keep me grounded. And I never, I think what drives me, Mark, is I never want to feel like I'm done. I never want to feel like, oh, I've learned everything I can learn because how boring would that be? Like that, that's not even appealing to me. And I think with the pace of change in the consumer economy right now in the media world and technology, that if you're not constantly learning and growing, you're actually not doing your job like you you have to adapt i mean i think human beings you know darwin told us that we have to adapt to survive and i i really have felt that my entire life and i love one of the things i read about in the book is spending time with the younger people on my teams and younger people that you know i work with in the nonprofit world and through my work with the university in indiana i love that every time i come away from spending time with undergrads or graduate students that i'm it gives me hope for the future because I'm like, these people can help change the world, but it also makes me better. I've always learned something from any of those interchanges or any times I spend. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the book tour is I'm going to different college campuses. Um, I think I have four or five scheduled already and across the United States. I'm super excited about that. Well, I can tell you from working at a university and, and been teaching for 18 years, along with my ventures. Nothing gets you more excited than working with students and nothing brings out the best in you uh, oh, yeah. than working with them. I mean, I meet students now, they're just brilliant and I want to learn from them. And I tell right. them uh, that there's a lot they could teach me. I'm totally open-minded. Yeah. Uh, you, wrote, you wrote about working for two of Disney's most famous uh, CEOs, yeah. Michael Eisner and Bobby, uh, Bob Iger, who had very different management styles. Very what different. What did you learn from each uh, that you think entrepreneurs could utilize? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. My time at Disney was almost half and half, almost exactly. And and Bob was the president under Michael Eisner. So Bob was kind of there the whole time. But I think Michael's management style was very, very, very goal-driven. And he almost liked competition between the different as the different parts of the business, right? The different business units, the different functional units. And he liked that competition. He thought that that competition brought the best out for Disney, where you were almost competing for assets and competing for capital. And, and I understand that point of view. Um, obviously, as I read it in the book, I think I'm more of a Bob Iger disciple and management style. And that Bob was really about collaboration. And Bob saw the big picture of if everybody's rowing in the same direction and we have a big movie coming out for Marvel or a big movie coming out for Disney Princess, the 
the word at Disney was synergy, but synergy is code word for collaboration, meaning all the aspects of the company rowing in the same direction to celebrate the Avengers movie or celebrate the Star Wars movie or the Little Mermaid movie. Um, really that there would be more success working like that rather than working competitively. I think that's probably like in a nutshell, the biggest difference between the two of them. What's the same about the two of them? Extremely intelligent, extremely good with people and extremely good, as I mentioned earlier, about managing a creative community. Both of them, very, very good at that. Last question. I'm curious about what the role you think AI will play in the retail Mm. field that you spent a career in. Yeah. I mean, this is something I'm saying. Talk about being a lifelong learner, Mark. I think we're all learning about AI, right? And we're all studying AI. And I think specifically in retail, I think where AI is going to have a lot of, of influence, I would say, is in the product development and the design side. I think there's going to be a lot of tools that are developed out of that to help you design the product and source product and manufacture product. I think where AI, and I think AI is going to have a lot of um uh, benefit in the direct-to-consumer world and in kind of back office operations and and um, uh, maybe even some customer service functions. I, I think where AI can't replace, and it's something that I'm super passionate about, is the physical store experience. Like, I don't think AI can come in and merchandise a store. And I mean, they can plan a store, but I don't think they can physically merchandise the store or create a service culture within a store. Um, or, you know, within a, a physical environment. Um, and so I think, I think there'll be limits to AI in that part of retail, more the field, what a lot of people call the field. But like everybody else, I need to study it and, and understand because it's changing every day um, and needs to, uh, needs to be understood and needs to be embraced and needs to be harnessed for good. I want to thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to speak with us. I love the book, and um, I'd like to talk to you a second uh, before we leave here. Sure, so, absolutely. So thank you very much, everyone, for attending, and we look thank forward you, to everybody. this Friday for the next show. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.